Well, good morning. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reformed. Uh, I believe, are we dismissing children for Children's Church today? Someone tell me if I'm wrong. We do occasionally have a Sunday we don't, but I think they're, they're not running out like a, a herd of cattle, so I was slightly suspicious. But um, we are dismissing children for Children's Church. They'll be uh, wrestling with similar themes and ideas as to what we have here. Um, we are taking a break in the sermon series we've been doing. We've been moving through the uh, epistle of James, the letter of James to a church in exile. And uh, we are going to spend some of the weeks moving towards Christmas and immediately following. Uh, on a different subject, we're going to be uh, choosing Bible passages that reflect on the names of Jesus. Jesus ha- had many names. Some were used to identify him in conversation. Someone might say, hey, Jesus, and he would say, what? Um, that was his name. And others were used to describe something of his character. As we move towards Christmas, we're going to focus particularly on different uh, stories early in each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in which Jesus is given a name, and we'll think about the significance of what that name might be. Uh, Today we'll see a passage from the Gospel of Matthew. It'll have reference to several names, but we'll focus particularly on the name Emmanuel. Uh, a name that is, has great significance in the Old Testament, but tells us also something so important for us to think about uh, in our Christian life and in this season, approaching Christmas, the importance of God being with us. I'll read the passage and then we'll together affirm that this is God's word for us. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We ask the question as we move through this series, what's in a name? What's the significance of a name? Uh, That question, what's in a name, was asked by Juliet of the Capulet family in Shakespeare's blockbuster 16th century play, Romeo and Juliet. As she calls down from her balcony in scene two of act two to Romeo, Montague, hidden in the shadows. He snuck over the wall to call out to the forbidden love. What's in a name, she asks. Well, as the play unfolds, quite a bit. She ponders in that moment, in that classic scene, does a name really matter? A rose by any other name would still be as sweet. Does it matter that you're a Montague and I'm a Capulet? Well, Shakespeare tells us it matters quite a bit. Because names have significance. For modern people, this can be a bit of a surprise. 
We don't like to think of the significance of our name, or if we do, it's only the significance we choose to give to it. But names even matter today. Who you belong to and who you're associated with can have a lot to do with your life. But in more traditional cultures and societies, the naming ritual can take on great significance. It not only tells us something about our family connections, we have a family name, but it can be seen as having great significance over meaning and purpose in our life. One of the reasons I think we approach this differently as modern Western people is we tend to think that our identity is mostly formed from within. It's the name we give ourselves, so to speak, that really matters. But in the ancient world and more traditional societies, they understood that the forces around us, the forces of family, or in some cases of fate, the forces that shape us are those that are around us. Now, the Bible, in many ways, tells us that both are true and yet neither are ultimate, that our family and our, uh, the forces around us that shape us, even our, our uh, uh, work identity, these things matter, and yet they're not ultimate. And yet it also warns us that we don't take our identity merely by bestowing upon ourselves an identity. The passage that we look at today is one that's full of naming. And the significance of the name, the names given, is particularly drawn out by Matthew in this gospel. One of the features we want to see as we look at the passage is the way in which Matthew shows us the importance of the names that are given. As we do this, we learn, first of all, we're reminded that when God gives a name, we really want to listen. It's a passage about God naming. But it also is a passage that tells us something about Jesus. Important things to know because the names of Jesus matter. Jesus is not named Jesus merely because it sounded nice, but because of a deep, important significance attached There are other names in the passage that function a similar way. So we look at the passage, we'll do three things together. We'll first of all just highlight the way in which Matthew shows us that names matter. We see that in a couple names in the passage, and we'll focus particularly on one of the names given by the angel, and that's the name Emmanuel. But secondly, we'll think about what the names mean. In two of the cases, he actually gives us a translation, so we'll explore what does the name mean, what's the significance of it. But third and finally, we'll ask, well, what does this mean for us? What's the significance for me that Jesus is called Jesus or that he would be associated with this Old Testament prophecy whereby people called him Emmanuel? First of all, what's in a name? What's the significance of a name? Matthew believed that names matter. In the passage, we see that the angel actually names three people, gives three names that are related to Jesus. The first of them is not the most obvious, but it comes when the angel addresses Joseph, the father of Jesus, or the, as the text tells us, adopted father of Jesus. He says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Now, I said it's a subtle naming, because unless we're really paying attention, we might not notice the significance that Jesus is called son of David. After all, if you were reading along in the Gospel of Matthew, you would have read just a couple, just a couple verses earlier the fact that Joseph had a father and his actual biological father was not David. It was, I believe, from memory, Jacob. And so the naming here, the naming that the angel does, is to address Joseph by a title, not of his 
earthly biological father, but of his great ancestor David, the great king of Israel who came before him. And as we'll see in the passage, that is significant. So the first naming we see here is a subtle naming, but it's one in which the angel addresses Joseph in a certain way. It tells us something about Joseph's identity and, more importantly, about his adopted son, Jesus. Well, the second place we see the importance of naming is in the name that Joseph is told to give to this son. He is told here to name his son Jesus. Now, this is important, we can see in the text, because it's repeated. The angel comes, and anytime an angel shows up, you assume something important is going to happen. God's speaking through an angel. This is God telling us something to do. But not only does that show the importance, but Matthew then repeats. You notice at the very end of this paragraph, and he called his name Jesus. So Matthew wants us to know that the naming of Jesus was important. And he also highlights this by giving the name an explanation. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Now we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the fact that, that Matthew wants us to know the meaning of the name highlights the importance of it. Again, he, he's not Jesus just because Jesus is a nice name and it, it goes well. But the naming here is important in part because it's a ritual by which Joseph, the father, establishes a clear connection to his son. The, the drama of this passage, and a drama that you may be familiar with if you've read this before, or may have just some idea of, even if you're casually associated with Christianity, the drama here is that Mary is found to be pregnant, but she's not yet fully married to Joseph. In, in the ancient world, in this uh, Near Eastern uh, culture that these uh, Jewish people lived in, the marriage ceremony had two parts of it. It's sort of like the modern-day engagement followed by a wedding, but the engagement was far more serious. And so when it said that Mary was betrothed, on one hand, they could speak of themselves as being, in a sense, husband and wife, but they hadn't fully gotten married yet. And so to, to separate at this stage does require a divorce, as we see in the passage. But Mary and Joseph are not married in the sense that we think of marriage. They were not living together so, when Mary is found to be pregnant, it's a scandal. It's a scandal for two reasons. It means that either Mary and Joseph had broken the rules and they'd come together before their time, or that Mary had been with someone else. Now, in this case, Joseph knows that it wasn't him. And so, the scandal of the situation is one in which she's found to be pregnant, and his only assumption is that someone else is the father. Joseph, it says, is a righteous man. He has right to file divorce publicly. If he's paid uh, any, any amount of money in advance to allow the wedding to happen, he could recoup it, but it would put great shame on her. And so it says that in mercy, Joseph is going to divorce quietly. And then God intervenes. He speaks to Joseph in a dream. This is something Joseph would have been prepared to think of as a message from God. He speaks uh, by an angel, and the angel says to him, Listen, this is not just an ordinary baby, but Mary, has be has, uh, that which is in her is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you shall take this son as your own. Joseph believes God. He accepts the message. And he accepts the responsibility of being the adopted father. 
It comes for Joseph as it did, did for Mary at great personal cost. Both Joseph and Mary had a, a sense of a, a social shame that they would have endured as a result of this whole ordeal. Now, probably not everyone knew the exact timing. He doesn't give us the details. But when Matthew says she was uh, found to be with child, the impression is other people knew. Joseph knew, or family knew. And Joseph, in taking this upon himself, is in a sense bearing the shame of having uh, a, a baby that came too soon. And yet Joseph moves through with, with what is, from his perspective, an adoption. Probably not from anyone else's perspective, but Joseph and Mary. And one of the things that we might miss in the passage, if we're not familiar with the customs and the rituals of the time, is that when Joseph accepted the name and bestowed it on Jesus, he's forming a, a formal connection with this child so that it would no longer ever be disputed that it was his son. The, the inheritance that Joseph would have, and very importantly, the name that Joseph would have as the son of David, would go to Jesus. Jesus would be the son of Joseph. The scholar R.T. France puts it this way. He says, Joseph naming Jesus ensured the status as son and heir. You see, everyone knew that in any situation, they would know that a child came from the mother because it would have been obvious, but in the naming, the father says, this child is mine. There's a third naming that's important, however, and it's a different type of name that we see in chapters in verses 22 and 23. Matthew tells us that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This name, Emmanuel, is a, sort of a translation, but it's really a transliteration. It's the Hebrew sounds of the word Emmanuel written in Greek, as, as, as Matthew wrote it. Again, we see the importance of naming. Jesus shall be called this. In summary, uh, scholar Leon Morris writes, The name of Jesus was not to be left to the discretion of the parents, as important as it was for the parents to do that. For this child was, was special and had a destiny that was to be expressed in the meaning of these names. The names of Jesus matter. And again, as, as sort of modern people, we're not oriented to thinking of it quite so much that way. But Matthew wants us to know the names of Jesus matter. They're important. And they tell us something of them. So what is the significance of these names? The name Son of David the name Jesus, the name Emmanuel, well, part two, we continue on. Uh, the names of Jesus, what do they mean? Uh, the son of David, for those who were following along in the, uh, Matthew's original audience, had tremendous significance. David was not just an ancestor of Joseph, but he is, in a sense, the ancestor, the king, the great king of Israel. And to be a descendant of David not only meant some, some honor, everyone would want to have David as their great-great-great-grandfather, but it also meant that you were in the line of the king and that a, the promise that had been given to David, that one of his sons would reign on the throne forever, it would mean that that could come through you. 
Earlier, uh, God had spoken to David, the great early king of Israel, and had given him a promise. He said, David, one day you will have a descendant, and that descendant will reign on the throne of Israel forever. Well, the actual children of David didn't quite fit the bill. Solomon was wise, he expanded the kingdom, but he was also unfaithful. And after his death, the kingdom was divided in two between the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Clearly, it wasn't Solomon who would reign on an eternal throne. And yet, as the Old Testament unfolds and as God continues to speak through the prophets, the people were trained to await a day in which God would bring a great king and that promise would truly be fulfilled. And so they waited for the true son of David. In the ancient world, uh, in, in times of this time in Israel, kings were not so much crowned as anointed. And so when people spoke of a king, they might speak of the anointed one. And when they thought about the great king that would come to fulfill the promise to David, they spoke of the, the anointed one. In Hebrew, the Messiah. In Greek, the Greek translation is Christos, from which we get the word Christ. And so when Matthew introduces Jesus as Jesus Christ, he's not giving us the last name of Jesus. Christ is not the last name, it's his title. It means he's the true Davidic king, the fulfillment of the promise given to David. And this only happens because Joseph, his father, adopts him. He is now in the line of David, the true king who would come to fulfill all that was promised. And so when Joseph is referred to as the son of David here, it's highlighting the fact that Jesus too will be the son of David and that he can be the Christ, the one through whom all the blessings of the promised Messiah would come. Well, the second name we see is a little more obvious, and that's Jesus. On one hand, Jesus was a a very common name. It, It really is exactly similar to the word Joseph. In the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, the word Jesus and Joseph are both translated the same way. But through the development of language over time, we speak of Joseph and Jesus and we pronounce them differently. But in in the first century, in the time in which Jesus lived, many people would have had this name. There are other people in the New Testament with the name Jesus. If Jesus was at a party and someone said, hey Jesus, maybe a couple people would turn their head. And so he was referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. He was a Nazarene, particularly when he was outside of Nazareth. It might not have helped as much if you were in Nazareth, but as his ministry unfolded and he moved to different places, he was Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus, the carpenter's son, he would be called. The word Joseph, however, does have a significance. And even though it was common, Matthew wants to highlight the importance of the name. It comes from two parts, the first, Yah, and the second, Shua, in Hebrew. It means God, it's the covenant name of God, Yah, Yah saves. And so Joshua in the Old Testament, the the follower of Moses who led his people into the promised land when he was called Joshua, it was a reminder to the people that we are going after the one named after, God saves. That's our hope. Matthew draws this out and he says Jesus is going to be named Jesus not just because you know, it's the top ten names of young uh, Hebrew boys growing up in Palestine. I, I don't know that for sure, but um, you can think of all the other reasons. But he says, no, that's not the reason. 
He's not named Jesus because his great uncle happened to have the name also, or it just sounds good when followed by, uh, after you know, Joseph and Mary. He said, no, the real reason I want you to name him Jesus is because he will save the people from their sins. Just as Joshua bore that great burden of a name as he carried the people into the promised land, so too this son who was born will be the one who saves the people from their sins. It's an important name for him to carry. And Matthew wants us to know it's an important name. It's a name that shows us something of his destiny. When God gives a name, he gives it for a purpose. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment. Each of these two names, Christ or Jesus, are obviously so important. But they're going to show up many other places through the rest of the month. So we'll kind of put them, uh, put them on the shelf for the moment. The third name is the name we'll focus on today. And really think about the significance of as we apply it to our lives. The third name that's given in verses 22 and 23 is Emmanuel. And they will call him Emmanuel. And then... Matthew didn't have parenthesis, but we understand that's the way he's speaking, parenthetically. And then the name means, Matthew says, God with us. If you were reading your Old Testament and you came to Isaiah chapter 7, you would see a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah of a boy who would be born called Emmanuel. In a modern writing of the word, it's written in two words. With us, Emmanuel. God, the other name for God, El. And so this name was promised in the Old Testament. The promise was originally given to King Ahaz. He was the king of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, and he had learned the frightening news that the northern kingdom had teamed up with Syria, and they were going to invade. It was an overwhelming military power. And then the prophet Isaiah shows up and says, this is a sign to you, God is with us, Emmanuel. There was sort of, in a sense, perhaps an immediate fulfillment. There was a a child born to Isaiah, and before that child was old enough to even really learn how to, to speak well, the kingdoms of Syria and Israel were rendered uh, impotent by the power of Assyria. And yet, as Isaiah continues to expand on this name, it's clear that he has in mind a son that would be born that that no son born in the 8th century B.C. could ever possibly be. He's a son born of a virgin. As a son, as we see in our call to worship, a son, a child who is born and a son who is given, and upon his shoulders will be the government. And you talk about heavy naming. Isaiah does some heavy naming of this son. He says, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Matthew says, that is this boy born to Mary, adopted by Joseph. All that Isaiah said about him, that's going to be fulfilled here. All you've been waiting for, this is the Christ, this is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. I'm going to hold on to that name in particular as we ask the question, what's in a name? What's the power of that name in our lives That Jesus should be Emmanuel, God with us. 
One of the greatest Christmas carols we sing, one of the most famous, is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We're going to sing it during communion today, remembering, first of all, the longing of God's people as they waited for the Christ to come, but secondly, drawing that same longing as we look for him to return and set all things right. But what's in this name? What does it mean for you and for I to sing those words, O come, O come, Emmanuel? What does it mean to know that Jesus was born and called Emmanuel? Now, unlike Jesus, and even the title Son of David, which people occasionally use, unlike Jesus, no one, as far as we know, ever called Jesus Emmanuel. It wasn't so much the nickname that he had, but as the description of what he was doing. Matthew wants us to know that if we understand Jesus well, we will grasp the meaning of this name, Emmanuel. What does it mean for us? This is our, our third part, and we'll just draw out three things quickly. What does it mean that Jesus would be Emmanuel? Now, first of all, it means that Jesus is God incarnate drawing near. This is the importance of the virgin birth. A pointer to the fact that Jesus, though he is fully and truly human, also is fully and truly God. The word took on flesh. Jesus, who had existed, the Son of God who existed before, took on flesh and was named Jesus, a real person, truly God and truly man. And because God came near in the person of Jesus, because in Jesus we can say God is with us, we now know something more, more powerfully, more closely of what God is like. The Christian doctrine or teaching that describes this is one we call incarnation. And most Christians would know that Christmas is a celebration of incarnation. God with us. God drew near. You see, we, from the very beginning of God revealing himself, all people who followed after God wanted to know what God is like. And he can tell us in words through the prophets and show us in his deeds, but God himself is spirit, invisible. No one can see God and live. God in his full glory and the substance of his being, but veiled in flesh. Jesus, the true son of God, lived among us. And so we can answer this question, what is God like? We say, well, I look at Emmanuel, God with us. We read the Gospels about Jesus and we hear and the, the apostles and prophets have followed after them the description of what Jesus is like and we say, that is God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the book of Hebrews tells us. If you want to know what God is like, look at him. And as you read these, new, uh, these uh, go the gospel accounts, we see this amazing picture of a God revealed in Jesus who is gentle with the weak and the needy and yet absolutely willing to confront the oppressors. We need that picture to really see and to know. That we see someone who serves the disciples and the crowds, caring for their needs, providing their food, washing their feet, and yet also who calls his followers to forsake every other loyalty and pick up their own cross. We see that's what God is like. We see Jesus willing to endure great suffering, excruciating suffering for the sake of his mission. 
But we also see a Jesus who's not only strong, but also tender, crying with his friends at a funeral and weeping over the disobedient city that refused him. But we tell what we're told by John, his close friend, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. He says, No one has seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Secondly, what do we know when we look about Emmanuel? We know that God not only with us, but because of Jesus, God is for us. You see, the coming of God in the Bible can bring both salvation or judgment. The holy God drawing near and being with us in the Bible is not automatically a good thing. It's actually, first and foremost, a frightening thing. What if the God who made the universe whose name we've taken carelessly upon our lips, whose revelation we've, we've dealt with as a trivial matter, what if he actually were to show up? That's the sort of spirit of the Bible. The holy God draws near. Well, Jesus is Emmanuel in a good sense because he's Jesus who saves the people from their sins. God is near and with us and we can be near God Because Jesus came not only to live and to reveal the character of God, but to stand in our place in the judgment we deserved. Jesus is Emmanuel, and the good news of Emmanuel, because he not only was born in the stable, but he carried his cross. That's why some of our best Christmas songs pick up both of those themes. We rejoice in incarnation. We rejoice in the, in the beauty of God with us in the person of Jesus Christ. But we remember he had a mission. Even here in this story, Matthew says he has a mission. He will save his people from their sins and it will be costly. It will cost him his life. His whole life lived in perfect obedience will be offered up in place of rebels like me and you. Because he is Jesus, he can be through us who by faith trust in him, who are connected to him. He can be Emmanuel in all of its beauty. Third and finally, however, not only was Jesus really with us and with his people, and not only did he go to the cross on our behalf, but he promised that after his resurrection, his physical body goes to heaven, that he would pour out his Holy Spirit, and by the power of his Spirit, He would sustain us with his presence. Jesus was Emmanuel for the disciples, really incarnate among them in the flesh. And he was Emmanuel for us on the cross as he bore the weight of our sins. But now, raised to glory, ruling and reigning as the king of the universe, Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, is with us spiritually. He is now for us Emmanuel. Matthew promises this later in his gospel. He hear, Jesus speaks these words that Matthew records. He promises to his disciples in Matthew 18.20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Or, and Jesus sends his disciples out with a commission, we call it the Great Commission. He says, Behold, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. What does it mean that Jesus is with us by the power of his spirit. Let me just close with two quick applications. First of all, wherever you go and whatever you do, you carry with you the promise that Jesus gives to be with those who trust in him. 
When you go into hard situations, you do it with the promise that Jesus is near. What challenges do you face this week? What difficulties do you have weighing on you? This truth has become really precious in my life recently, probably within the last half year, and I suppose I've talked about it before. But my my default is to think, if God is for us, then that must mean that he's going to remove the problems and everything will be easy. Now, I know that's not true, because Jesus said, if you follow me, you'll have trouble. I know it's not true, but I, I tend to think that at some deep level. Oh God, if you're really with me, then you'll make that go away. But slowly and surely, God is reshaping my vision. If you think about what, Matt, what Joseph and Mary heard when they heard, God is with us, Emmanuel, God was not making their problems go away. In fact, everything got a whole lot harder when God showed up. Everything in Mary's life got harder once the angel said, you're going to have a baby and it's not from Joseph. Everything got hard. She had to endure frightening public shame, potential. We don't know how bad it got, but it could have been terrible. Not only that, the crazy King Herod tries to kill them. They have to flee to Egypt. Can you imagine Mary in Egypt on the run? The, the, the king over Israel at the time trying to kill them? She's thinking, what do you mean God with us? And yet that's exactly the promise. I'll be with you, Jesus says, in the midst of the challenge and the hardship and the difficulty. And so what I've, God's been teaching me to do is rather than to look for the way around that I think he might give, look for his presence in the midst of. I had a challenging thing happen last week. It's not related directly to our congregation, but I was dreading it. And I began to find the incredible comfort of walking forward saying, God, you promised to be with us. I'm asking you to show up. And he did. He gave me eyes to see the small ways he was present, sustaining, and the next day he showed his presence in such amazing power in exactly the places I needed. As if he delighted to say, listen, oh weak guy, keep walking forward. Salvation belongs to me. God saves. Jesus saves. And as if, as if he wanted to tell me, Matt, do you not know I promised to be with you? Sometimes that shows up in my heart as I feel buoyant and joyful and strong and courageous, but most often it doesn't. And God teaches me to walk forward anyway. And he says, look for me. I'm here, present around you, active and working, not abandoning you, but present in the midst of your struggle. God with us, Emmanuel. Second and finally, we turn to the Lord's table. This is uh, what we do at the uh, beginning of each month. We close our service by eating at this meal. And this meal, more than anything else, is actually a visible description of Emmanuel. God with us. All of those things we talked about, they find their place and their meaning here. You want to know what God is like. You want to know that he's close, that he's with us. We're taught, come here to this meal. Jesus is present. The whole shape and structure of the meal is oriented around the fact that Jesus gave himself for us. The the word of God incarnate in human flesh did this meal 2,000 years ago and told his disciples, pass it on. 
So we do it. Taking the body broken in the bread, the blood poured out for us in the wine, remembering that God is with us because Jesus gave himself for us. But finally, we're reminded that God really is here. That when we come to these elements before us, we speak of it as Presbyterians, as a sacrament. We don't believe it's the actual physical body of Jesus, but we believe Jesus is present spiritually. And we say, when you take this by faith, you're taking a token of God's presence. He is just as real to you spiritually as the bread and the cup are to you physically. And so we commune. We fellowship with Jesus and with one another as we come forward. We wish, I wish, that we would know this meal with the Lord himself physically present serving. And one day we're told we will, in some sense. Until then, he's spiritually present by the power of his spirit. And we come to his supper, his meal, to know he's with us. Let's pray.